So remember how I was like, oh my god, am I socially awkward? Yeah. Are you also socially awkward? Oh my god, Alex, so... Are me and you and Caroline... I do all think socially Caroline awkward. Might be secretly socially awkward because she's. Oh, Caroline is totally socially awkward. What would make more sense that I'm the only unsocially awkward one in the group, or that like we all we're all socially weirdos? awkward? Sunshine, yeah. we are all almost thirty, and we're just realizing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny as hell. <laughs> I'm glad you've had more time to let this settle in. It's not funny to me yet. You are listening to 5.30 on your podcast aisle. Confused yet? Well, my dad, Raymond, or Ruckland, is putting out 5 and 30, an interview podcast. Wait, wait, don't leave. It's not going to be one of those boring, hour-long shows, no. He's going to be sitting down with creators, voice actors, and hosts from many different shows that he swears you will have heard of, and asking them five random questions. They could be simple, deep, or just plain silly, and after they answer them, they'll get 30 seconds to plug whatever they want. No matter what, the goal is for you, yes you, to get to know the people behind the shows you listen to even better. And who knows, maybe you'll even find a new show to check out. This will all be coming to you everywhere you already get your podcasts starting the first week of the new year. Check castjunkie.com for more details. (sighs) Okay, Dad, I did the thing. Can I please go now? Five and 30 with Ruck. Coming soon. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm Alexandria Youngray with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Bellon. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. So, we're just going to get started. Alright, so I'm actually, I'm really excited about this because... Because of the nature of our show, like, mm-hmm. being, like, like, our show is a horror and true crime show. Like, that's really what it's about. But we like to make, like, big social statements. Yes. Which means that we tend to cover subjects that are pretty, like, established historically. hmm Because those are the ones that we well, can see the fallout from. Right, seeing so- the trends. Socially. Yeah. Yeah, and the trends and, and I the mean, social implications of those sorts of things are really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I don't know how quickly like the Candyman trope mm-hmm. became a trope, but the reason that the Candyman story, like knowing it now, is so interesting is because the Candyman trope has a hundred percent been around our whole lives. Yeah. Well, much like the um, scary clown thing. It's just Mm -hmm. like, it's gaining insight into things that we've been socialized to be afraid of or uncomfortable with our whole lives, but never really understood why. Yeah. And so we usually don't cover a lot of modern stuff, but this seemed... (sighs) 
2018 was kind of a wild year. 2017 was kind of a wild year. As far as serial killers go. Oh, really? Yeah. So, in 2017, the entire world shat its pants. Because Iran's, the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, Joseph D'Angelo, was caught. Which is that... California serial killer who, oh my god, such a li- literal boogeyman. He can, would. You can see all the blankness on my face, right? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm slightly surprised and slightly not at all surprised that you don't recognize any of the things I'm saying. Well, also, I mean, like, think about the last three years of my life. It's been like my own crazy bullshit clusterfuck weirdness. Oh yeah. So, so you wouldn't have even been like. So me like, being I like almost a... was like super dropped out of like you know. I went from being like crazy moving to California bullshit to pretty much dropping out of like dropping out of society that way to then being isolated in rural Utah and just like fucking working all the time. Right. Um, It's really only been since we've been doing this podcast that I've become more even present with our world. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, probably a good thing, right? Blissfully unaware of whatever horrible boogeyman serial killer shit was happening. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. And I mean, so I remember when I first started researching serial killers, which probably would have been in the early knots. Mm-hmm. I remember being like, wow, there's not that many recent serial killers. And okay. and that's still kind of the case. Like, basically, there was just a huge explosion of serial killers in the in, like, 70s. In the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah. Okay. Huge. Like, yeah, between, like, 60s and 80s, just so many. So fucking many. Uh, have you established that, why that really was on a social level? Because that's something that I've always been really intrigued by and just, like... I I would love I to do more research before. and give you a more, like, actual answer. But I think it's a bunch of things. One of which being, I think that police work developed in such a way that we were able to literally profile serial killers like this is also when serial killer profiling became a thing so are you saying that there wasn't necessarily a spike but maybe we just became more aware of them well i think that there also might have been a spike i think that there may have been like social unrest and maybe an increase in population and like a bunch of different this and this and this all these crazy factors that made it so that there was a spike but i also think that us being able to catch them at all was a spike in police work yeah and then i think because of the increase in police work we've been able to catch people after committing murders quickly Right, so maybe people who would be, like, as far as more modern times, mm-hmm. more the chances that we've caught people who would have become serial killers before they were able to get multiple kills mm-hmm. uh, has diminished the more recent numbers. Yeah, and I, I think that I, I can't 100% speak on, like, the social causes of mm-hmm. the huge 70s spike in serial killings and then, like, the less on either side of the bell curve. Yeah. But policing, I think, is a big deal as far as investigation and as far as forensics, because basically we weren't able to even know that there were proper serial killers before. I mean, we were, but not at the rates that we were. Right. And then after, I think that we became better at just catching murderers. Um... 
And that might have made it so that we caught people before they grew a bigger portfolio kill count. Yeah, kill count, <laughs> body count, portfolio. Yeah, I guess portfolio makes them sound too professional. I am a professional serial killer. <laughs> Look at my portfolio. That's American Psycho, I guess, really right there. Yeah, no, that that the movies have definitely been made. <laughs> but yeah, I remember being like, there's not that many serial killers. And it is kind of true. There's definitely been like a diminished amount of serial killers. Mm -hmm. So in our lifetime, there has been less serial killers than in our parents' lifetimes. Good. I like yes. that. It's probably a good thing. That said, they are not completely gone. As and we're about to. Yeah. So so I brought up the East Area Rapist because that was a really big deal. It was... And a part of the reason that it was a really big deal is because it was getting a lot of attention of late because a handful of true crime podcasters were interested in the case, and mm -hmm. also Michelle Mac McNamara, who yeah, was yeah, yeah. Patton Oswalt's wife, who was the true yep. crime investigator, mm -hmm. who was writing a solve? book. What did she solve before, right before right the East Area Rapist? That was what she solved. Okay, she didn't solve it, or but she put together a ton of the puzzle pieces that led to the police finally solving it, like a year after she died. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, basically, she published the book. Well, she was about to publish the book. And then she died. The book that was on the East Area Rapist. Right. Or and then he was the caught. Or the State Killer. Okay. Or the Golden Googled, State Killer. Yes. I Googled that and I'm now starting to remember some things. Yeah. And so he was caught in, I think, April of 2017. Why do I remember that? I'm gross. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and the whole world was like, oh my God, what? Because, oh my God, what? Oh, yeah. Date apprehended in April 24th, 2018. Oh, God. I don't know why I remember that. Anyway. <laughs> Your brain is sick. My brain is sick. Yeah, it was 2018. You're right. Okay. God, just, all of this is so recent. Wikipedia. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It is It is 2018. I'm just like, I'm I'm getting mixed up because it it is so recent and that's wild. Yeah. You know? But it really overshadowed a different serial killer who was caught just a few months prior in Toronto. And that's the serial killer I want to talk about today. Yes, do it. So we are going to talk about Bruce MacArthur. Oh, Bruce. Who does not... Well, I mean, he's got some fancy blah 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 serial killer names, but like, Bruce MacArthur. We'll tell you about why he's fucking crazy. Yes, I want to Right now... <laughs> So, Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, so he goes by his second middle name. Because don't give your kids that many names, please, guys. <laughs> I have so necessary. many names, Sunshine. I have so many names. You only have an extra name because of the adoption. You have the normal number of names for, without that. <laughs> That's true. But, um, alright, so he was born October 8th, 1951, in, in uh, rural Ontario, he married his high school sweetheart, who he had a son and a daughter with. Like you do. Like you do. And then in the late 90s, when MacArthur was in his late 40s, he came out as gay and left his wife. Okay. He also started a business as a landscaper. 
and played as a mall Santa during December. Okay. And you can kind of see from you looking see at him. You can see how he looked like a mall Santa type. He looks like a yeah. nice man. You wouldn't suspect him of being, he... uh, you know. A well, that's exactly it. Or... Is that he was so unassuming. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people were really very legitimately shocked because I think that in his personal life mm-hmm. and not his murdery secret merv yeah exactly i think that in just his daily interpersonal interactions with people that he wasn't killing he mm-hmm. was a very nice man mm-hmm. air quotes yeah but <sighs> but nope <laughs> so yeah, this was just going to be a mini-sode because basically when this case came out, I had a, a blog that mm-hmm. I updated here and there oh, yes. that I wrote like, here's what I know, real yeah. quick blog on. And so I was just going to have that. Mm-hmm. But it's been a year and a half and more stuff has been published and more stuff has happened. So I did some research while you were out of town. Oh, and lovely. this is a full-blown episode now. So, let's dive into this awful, 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 awful. Yes, let's. Okay. So, MacArthur was arrested January 18th, 2018. Mm-hmm. For the murders of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. And in January of 2019, he pled guilty to eight murders and has been sentenced to life in prison. Oh, jeez. So... This kind of got really weird and complicated in the 25 years in prison. That was real because he pled guilty. And then in Canada, the decision was, are these eight consecutive or are these eight um, all at the same time? Yeah. So basically, does he get the possibility of parole in 25 years? And yes, he does, but he'll be like 97 or something. Right. Okay. So it's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. (laughs) So I think the reason that this particular case kind of blew my mind is because MacArthur's choice of victims are not really your traditional, not what you traditionally think about as your, as like your serial killer victims. In what regard? So, so they were gay men and generally of Middle or Southern Asian, Middle Eastern or Southern Asian descent. Okay. So it was a vulnerable population in that aspect, but his victims were adult men between 37 and 59, which is not a population commonly targeted by serial killers. Right. Because they're able to defend themselves, potentially financially stable, potentially will be missed, don't have high-risk lifestyles, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, that sort of thing. A lot and lot, a lot, a lot of that. So, like, a lot of your gay serial killers are targeting teenage boys, like we talked about with uh, the Candyman and John Wayne Gacy, Mm -hmm. or they're they're at least still generally young men, Mm -hmm. like, um... Well, some of the men that Jeffrey Dahmer targeted were underage, but some of them were right, still adult but and young. Right, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And his victims were middle-aged men. Right. 
you know, very, very established in their being a human being. And also, you know, just just not the vulnerable population that you think of. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So I, I just remember being so fascinated by that. And we'll talk about that a little bit at, like, the very end. But that, I think, was what really drew me to this case, was, mm-hmm. like, what the fuck yeah. are are these victims, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... At least one of MacArthur's victims was facing deportation after not being accepted as a refugee. Uh, Some of his victims were homeless or struggling with drug addiction. And some of his victims were not out to their families, including their wives and kids. Oh, dear. So I think that added to even though they were not being out, I'm sure adds to your vulnerability. Yeah. So so even though they were like established middle aged men, I think that they were still vulnerable targets. Yeah. So MacArthur generally found his victims in Toronto's gay village, mm-hmm. which is essentially like the Castro district or, oh, fuck, I don't remember what it's called in the Stonewall area of New York, but it's the little gay area right, of that community. city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And disappearances link him to dates of operation between 2010 and 2017. Okay. However, there is suspicion that MacArthur may have been responsible for murders and disappearances in the gay village as far back as the 1970s. Wow. So there are 25 cold cases dating from 1975 to 1997 that were reopened during the MacArthur investigation. And that was before MacArthur came out as gay. So, MacArthur came out in 1978. Or, sorry, 1998. So, were those any were any of those killings attached to him? I don't believe so. Okay. But I don't know where that investigation has gone. Right. I don't know if they just stopped investigating after, after he was sentenced. Mm-hmm. Or if they ruled him out because the cases were different or what. But like. Right. Also, legal proceedings take forever, right? So, like, there could still be more information yet to come. That's possible. His case is done because he's been sentenced. Yeah. But the investigation of these cold cases could totally still be ongoing and they're just not releasing information because they're ongoing investigations. Right. But quick aside, there was a period in the 1970s where 14 men were murdered from the gay village within just like four or five years of each other. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Like a lot. And (laughs) seven of those are still unsolved. Hmm. And most serial killers don't start killing later in life. Right. They so MacArthur might ramp up their frequency, but they're not going to begin late in life. Yeah. So so MacArthur killing in 2010 as his first kill would have been almost 60. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Whereas if he was killing in the 70s, he would have been 
in his late 20s, early 30s, which is actually a really common period of life for serial killers to be active. Right. That said, that said, that said, that said, the killings were very different. Okay. So the men in the 1970s were stabbed and left where they were killed, where MacArthur strangled his victims and then specifically disposed of their bodies. Right. So... So the MO is very different. Mm -hmm. But basically, A, serial killers do sometimes change their methods. Right, especially if they get more intelligent and more afraid of getting caught. Maybe he'd realize, like, oh, maybe in his mind disposing of the bodies or killing them in a way with less blood might be advantageous. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I think that it's entirely possible that, I mean, in the 1970s, there just was not DNA evidence. There literally wasn't. Right. Whereas in the 2000s, yeah, there's plenty of DNA evidence. We have established this scientific method. Yeah. And so it is entirely possible that he changed his methodology. And also he was an older man, you yeah. know? So he, what he was doing to kill his victims in the confirmed cases mm -hmm. was he had a rope tied to a metal pipe that he would twist as a um, strangulation thing. device. Oh, man. Yeah. Which makes sense for an older man. Right. He's a tool. You know, as a tool. Creepy. And it's super creepy. Whereas if you're like 20s, 30s, stabbing somebody to death is a little bit easier than when you're 60. Yeah, for sure. So I, I don't think it's impossible that he was the serial killer involved. But basically, <sighs> either... MacArthur is a long, ridiculous, like, gay, grim sleeper. Or there's two Murder, serial gay killers targeting within serial killers within, yeah, with, within Toronto's gay village. Watch so, out, Toronto. Yeah, for real, though. Well, and that's, like, that's a big part of this whole issue is <sighs> Toronto's relationship with the police like mm -hmm. the gay communities and the southeast asian communities relationship with the police is bad so bad so bad right now and before i'll get into it a little more but ugh. so so that's just like an aside for like 1970 serial killer what the fuck mm -hmm. in 2002 so this was shortly after him, you know, leaving his wife and, and becoming a part of the gay community. Myth MacArthur assaulted a man with a pipe and was charged and convicted for that in okay. 2003, which led to a two-year probation, including a restraining order against going to the gay village. Okay. Then in 2016... So, okay, in 2014, he asked to have his record sealed, okay. which he won. Because he'd been, like, on good behavior? Yeah, essentially. So in 2014, he asked to have his record sealed, and it was sealed. Then in 2016, he assaulted another friend. He um, attempted to strangle 
a sexual partner. And he was interviewed by police, but was released without charges because the counter was deemed as a consensual encounter. Oh, because of the BDSM aspect. Because of the BDSM aspect. Which complicates things because because he was a big BDSM person. That said, his van at the time of this encounter, where the encounter took place, was lined with plastic. That's creepy. That's kind of sketch. Yes. But yada yada, it's BDSM and gay people are icky. Let's let's go. Yeah. So MacArthur used gay dating apps, local clubs, and the BDSM community to reach his victims. And it was generally believed that he would get submissive men mm-hmm. into compromising positions. Right. Basically, he'd tie them up. And, and then, then basically so they consensually he would carry... get into a compromising position mm-hmm. and then he would murder them. Yeah, he would carry his sadism uh, long past the point of safe words, which is honestly so fucking terrifying. Right. It is. Like, like that is... Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and there are some situations where, like... um. Maybe you shouldn't get into a a plastic-lined van for sexy times? Yeah, I mean, when it comes... I don't know. I don't know, man. Like, yes, you should do sexy times with people that you trust, but also, like, casual sex is a thing. But also, I don't know, man. It's it's so complicated and icky, and I'm not gonna fucking victim blame, but also... Oh, shit, dude. It's just nightmare stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, the idea of, of, oh, I'm having this consensual sexual encounter. And, oh, no, now I'm getting murdered and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Fucking, whoa. Mm-hmm. What a shift. What a shift. So, ah, that's just, like, a terrifying awful. Then he would dismember his murdered victims and most of them, he placed their bodies in large planter boxes. Which he had access to because he was a landscaper. Yep. So for years, the queer community in Toronto suspected that they were being targeted by a serial killer. And that law enforcement just dropped the ball. The police attention was actually specifically directed to, hey, I think there's a serial killer, by this PhD student, Sasha Reed who was just a 29-year-old PhD student who studies serial killers. And her profile was actually almost right in every way, except that she estimated his age as much younger than he was. Because like I said- That's usually what happens. Yeah, serial killers generally are not in their fucking 60s. Yeah. But, you know, she was like, I think he's a blue-collar worker. I think that he is a gay man. I think that he is sexually motivated, etc., 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 etc. And then she was like, I think he's 30. <laughs> Wrong. So that was, that was actually when the police finally were like, okay, serial killer, let's time to investigate a serial killer. Mm-hmm. But the investigation really began in 2012 with something called Project Houston. Uh-huh. So Project Houston attempted to link three missing persons, mm-hmm. beginning with Skandaraj Navaratnam, mm-hmm. who had been a romantic partner of MacArthur's. Okay. 
and then later included Al- Abdul Basir Faizi mm-hmm. and Maid Kahan. Good job. They hoped to find a perpetrator, but the case was closed 18 months later without conclusion. Oi. So, again, the Toronto queer community is like, hi, what the fuck? Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Then, flash forward five more years. Well, five years from 2012, I guess only a couple of years from when the Project Houston is closed. In June of 2017, Andrew Kinsman went missing after Gay Pride Weekend. Mm -hmm. And a friend of Andrew's began looking for him because he was a prominent member of the queer community in the Toronto's Gay Village. So he began the Missing Rainbow Community, which was a Facebook social media group dedicated to finding the whereabouts of Kinsman and other missing persons from... The local LGBT community. Okay. And the Missing Rainbow community, although flawed, did connect and spread through social media the missing persons from Project Houston and Kinsman, as well as adding Salim Essen. Okay. Good job, social media. Right? I mean, basically, I don't want to discourage anyone from being an armchair detective because although you're not really a police officer, so like don't go and fucking harass people. Or like your effort or doing weird shit like that. Oh my god, do not. <laughs> but like your effort can bring attention to police and even help give clues to police. Right, right. If you're just using your brain power, or not just, but if you are specifically using your brain power and your reasoning skills. That's super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a perfect social media saves the day. Yeah. But it did a lot for the investigation. Right. Which makes sense. So this civilian effort led the Toronto police to create Project Prism, which was an attempt to find commonalities among the missing gay men. Okay. So sometime around August or September, Project Prism was able to connect MacArthur to Kinsman's disappearance, largely in part because Kinsman had written Bruce in his calendar, dated the day he disappeared. Oh, well, look at that. Yep. So in October, they recovered his Dodge Caravan, which he had sold over 40 miles out of Toronto, and they were able to find DNA evidence of multiple victims in the vehicle. Joy. Then police were monitoring MacArthur for a while before his arrest. And this is like the terrifyingest thing. He was arrested when he took another potential victim back to his place. Oh, so he was arrested with somebody there? Yep. So the police literally interrupted a murder. At least most likely. Most likely. But MacArthur had the man tied to his bed with a black plastic bag over his head. So it was like literally the Holy kill shit. setup that he had done two other victims. And that at the police that point, had, was, the vic- was the guy still, I mean, engaging in it consensually? Or at that point, was he like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, what's going on? I'm not sure because the guy has remained fairly um, anonymous. All right, which is fair. I can see why you would want to be well known. 
Yeah, and I didn't feel the need to, like, really, really investigate him because I didn't want to disturb his privacy. Right, that's fair. So, after MacArthur's arrest, at least a dozen of the planter boxes he used in his landscaping were sent to a forensic anthropologist. Uh And in those planter boxes were the remains of seven distinct humans. Oi. And then an eighth victim was found in a ravine beside this particular home. So basically all of these, and this was just a friend's house who he did landscaping work for. Right. Eight bodies. That's so What upsetting. in the fuck? That's so upsetting. Super upsetting. I definitely think if they found that many in one spot, like, there has to be more than that in total. Yeah. I haven't seen anything else about there being more confirmed victims since then, but. How can there not be? Yeah, yeah, it just, like, you have all of your bodies in just this one home. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So, and I know that they've investigated his other landscaping jobs. I just, it seems suspicious that that's it, you know? I agree completely. That can't be it. That said, so on his computer were photographs of his dead victims. Of them as, of them being dead? Many of them were posed post-mortem creepy yeah it's really spooky um a lot of them were posed like with this bare skin rug or this like fur coat or like a cigar like he was trying to make him sexy or classy or something yeah super super upsetting i don't like that yeah so i'm not gonna go in again this is kind of how i'm handling i'm I'm handling like the victims this is what happened to them like as a pile of the victims and then we can actually get into the victims as who's who they were in a little bit yeah so i'm not gonna be like oh and this particular person was posed in this way because fuck that No individual needs that attached to their identity. Yeah. I I don't necessarily think that any, like, victims or or family or friends are going to be, like, listening to our podcast. But also, like, like, out of respect, right? Their whole memory. Yeah. Their memory doesn't need to be, like, that. Yeah. Well, and also, like, in the, you know, unlikely chance that that does occur, that would be so fucking traumatic. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, listening to like, oh, blah, 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 and this is what happened, and then this is how they were posed. Yeah. Fuck that. So, so the picture thing is really, really upsetting and gross. Mm -hmm. Then there was also a USB drive found in his home, which contained folders with many of the victims' names. Mm -hmm. So they were things like missing persons reports and pictures. He was like saving all the data that came up on him. Yeah. So he like full went like super creepy classic serial killer of like keeping mementos and following the case control and documentation and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff the victim whose murder was likely interrupted Mm -hmm. the guy that they walked in on when they arrested him was one of the folder names which is like okay yeah that was probably gonna be a murder yeah so he also kept jewelry and other items belonging to his victims like i believe he kept a notebook mm-hmm. belonging to salim essen okay and bracelets and necklaces from other victims so yeah okay i'm going to i'm going to get into a little bit more of when things happened okay when we're talking about the victims it'll be a little bit more of a this is what happened okay you know, you'll be able to get the story, not mm-hmm. just how the investigation. 
So that's let's do let's do our victims. Okay. So MacArthur has been sentenced for the murders of all of the men from Project Houston and Project Prism, plus three more. Ugh. So this I think I got from the BBC mm-hmm. is just a big conglomerate picture of mm-hmm. all of them. So Essen, Kinsman, Cahan, Lisowick, Mamude, Navaratman, Faize, and Kanagaratnam. Mm-hmm. So his first victim, his first confirmed victim, mm-hmm. was Skandaraj, also known as Skanda, mm-hmm. Navaratnam. Okay. And he was one of the victims that was brought up and investigated during Project Houston. Okay. He was a 40-year-old Sri Lankan Tamil refugee who moved to Canada in the 1990s. And he had a history with MacArthur as both an employee and as a lover. Okay. So I think that during Project Houston, MacArthur actually was contacted and interviewed. But because of his relationship with Navaratnam, he was treated as a potential witness and not as a potential suspect. Oh, wow. Yep. Which is, I mean, I, I guess it kind of goes with that whole, like, nice-looking Santa man thing. Mm-hmm. You know, with the whole, like, clowns can get away with murder. Well, fucking Santa Claus can get away with murder. His friends reported him missing in September of 2010 mm-hmm. when he didn't come back to his apartment to take care of his new puppy. Oh. Which makes me That makes it extra so sad. So sad. I know. I learned about the puppy and I was like, I'm dead. So he is bottom second picture. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. The the smiling selfie. Yeah. He was clearly like I, I think he was actually like out in the gay village. Uh-huh. I'm just trying which to is why you've got life. like such a cute selfie from him. Yeah. A lot of these you can kind of tell are like passport photos. And and that is just such a like dating <clears throat> website selfie. Yeah. And he does, he looks cute. He is so cute. He was super cute. And his friends all said he was super nice. And I mean, obviously, his friends were the ones that reported him missing when he didn't come back to take care of his puppy. Yeah. So clearly he was connected. Right. You know? He was noticed and he was missed immediately. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, all of... Th- <sighs> I'm I'm glad that this is a small body count so that I could really sit with these victims and like kind of get to know them. Mm-hmm. As opposed to some of the larger body counts where I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm trying, but there's so many people. Yeah, you're like, I don't know everybody. Yeah, but because I was really sitting with them, it was really painful. You know, like, I see his face and I'm like, you feel friend. I feel friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get what you're saying. When the numbers are smaller like that, I mean, it's still, obviously, as a serial killer, it's still a lot. But when the numbers are smaller, it's easier to see them as individuals rather than a group <clears throat> yeah and 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 so yeah i really did like sit with these with these individuals and try to at least get enough that you could get some personality from my descriptions mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so so that's a big ouch that's like such an ouch to start with is just this friendly dude who was just a lover and an employee who left behind a puppy just like fuck man yeah, that's so yeah. sad. Murder victims are human beings. They're not just the victim. Yeah. You know? They're not just an object. 
Yeah, they're not just a fucking object. So then the second victim was also murdered in 2010 was Abdul Basir, mm-hmm. or I think some people called him Basir, uh, Fazi, mm-hmm. who was also tied into Project Houston. He was 42, and he was reported missing in December 2010. He was born in Afghanistan and, and immigrated from Iran. Okay. And he left behind a wife and two daughters who were 6 and 10 at the time of his disappearance. Mm, that's sad. Which is... A terrible age for your father to go missing and then to find out. So he was one of the ones that was, he was not out. He was living a secret life, which is so complicated when you are a refugee and an immigrant and a person of color. Well, and culturally, (sighs) I'm sure he had some of the same, you know, Mm -hmm. pressures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he, he was part of Project Houston. But he wasn't immediately tied to the gay village because his family didn't know he was gay. Yeah. And same thing with with Maid Hamid Kahan, uh, who was also a part of Project Houston. I believe he's the oldest victim. He was 58 years old. He was married with kids. The one with the kind of out of focus, light black picture. Yeah, he's the... Oh, yeah, sorry. Faizi is the bottom third picture. He's smiling with the the headband. And um, Kahan is the top third picture. And he's really out of focus. And that's always the picture they use for him. So, I don't know, probably was like a work photo or something. But he was the youngest of his siblings, and his, oh my god, this hurts me so bad, his adult son reported him missing October 2012 when he could no longer reach him. So basically, his son was trying to get a hold of him and couldn't. And it's like, I don't know, could you imagine trying to get a hold of your parent and that's when you report, I don't know. I just, I'm like thinking about my old, my own dad or something, and yeah. it's just like super upsetting to sit with that. It is. It really is to have that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the um, the the Project Houston victims mm-hmm. that were all connected, and the earliest victims. Then there were three that were not connected until their bodies were found. Okay. So there was Sarush Mahmoudi, who was 50 from Iran, and he lived with his wife and stepson. He's uh, the bottom first yeah. image. Bottom left. He was, yep, he was reported missing August 2015 by his wife, who referred to him as her soulmate. <sighs> oh, that's hard. Yeah, it's it's super, it's super effed. Then these next two victims fucked me up <laughs> so krishna kumar kanagaratnam mm-hmm. he was 37 and also a tamil refugee okay he came to canada in 2010 on a ship carrying 500 sri lankan asylum seekers oh wow and his refugee status was denied and he was ordered to be deported <sighs> so he was never reported missing because most of his family and friends assumed he was still in hiding. Right. They just didn't think he was missing. They just figured he was hiding. Yeah. Oh, that's so fucked up. Yeah, it's really fucked. 
So he was most likely killed between September 2015 and January 2016. Mm -hmm. But he was actually the last person identified because he was not directly connected to the gay village. He was never reported missing. Like, there was no easy way to connect them. They actually released a photo of him, and I believe that that's how they finally were able to connect him to the the case overall. Right. Which is just super fucking upsetting. Like, it hurts me so bad that because he was a refugee and an asylum seeker, and he had his asylum denied, that he was never reported missing. I hate that. Yeah, I don't know anything about the asylum process in Canada, but I know that, like, here, obviously it's super fucked. Uh, at the, It's always mm-hmm. been difficult, and it's hella fucked at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that definitely, like... Yeah, yeah, and, like, since becoming a lawyer, I've worked with people trying to seek asylum, and, and maybe that adds to how much this hurts. Well, I think having that personal experience with it totally does, especially seeing firsthand how... Like, almost impossible it is, is, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jesus Christ, to get on a boat with 500 other people coming from Sri Lanka. Like, I'm sorry, but... like, the boat that he was on was named. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Because... Because it was, like, a specific event. Well, and just, like, I can't... I don't know. I know that I've recently learned, you know, in our system, there's that whole basically demonstrating that you... Mm-hmm. There's certain ways that you have to demonstrate that you are in fear for your life. And mm-hmm. um, the idea I definitely that that's not think enough. simply, yeah, being like going all the way from Sri Lanka to Canada on a ship. Like, yeah, that with 500 other asylum seekers. Like that in and of itself, like maybe shows that you're desperate. Yeah. I mean, it just feels like those old, like, coming to America stories from, like, the early 1900s and 1800s. It's it's just like, this is still happening. Don't, how dare you deny them asylum? Yeah. I mean, I know at least part of my family tree got here because, literally seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. Like, we were from Europe, but still where we were from was being fucked over and people were afraid for their lives, so they came here. Yeah, and I mean, like, my Chinese family was technically, um, you know, refugeed from the several times mm-hmm. from from southern China in early World War II to out of China entirely to Taiwan during the communist regime and then out of Taiwan to Canada because of that relationship of with, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I guess... <sighs> There, there's all of the personal connections to like refugees at all and then also just like i don't know being a human with a heart just right. it hurts me so much yeah. that because he was a refugee that made him a victim he wasn't oh god it's just ouch 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 800 percent ouch yeah for sure 800 percent ouch yeah and then ugh. I, I imagine, so this is the only photo I've ever seen it. Well, actually, no, I've seen other photos of him in news reports and stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is the photo that's usually attached in just, like, pictures of the victim's uh-huh. news clippings. And I imagine that it's probably a passport it, attached it looks like photo passport. or an asylum yeah, photo. it looks like a official yeah. document kind of photo. Yeah. 
So, and then the third, like, non-project connected victim. Yeah. How's that? Perfect. Yes. Uh, Dean Lissowick. He was a 47-year-old homeless man who struggled with mental illness. That definitely puts you in a high-risk group, doesn't it? Oh, super. And I, I believe he also engaged in survival sex work, mm. which is probably how he met MacArthur. Yeah, probably, huh? Yep. So he was never reported missing Because who as would well. report a homeless person missing? Because he was homeless. And, like, he was still in touch with his family, you know, like, he would send cards to his parents, but because he was homeless and struggled with mental illness, he was never reported missing. Right. At what point do you think someone's missing versus in the throes of, like, a downward spiral? Homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. So he was most likely killed in the spring of 2016, but it's hard to know because there, there was no official... This is the last time we saw him. Right. This is when we noticed that we saw him last. Yeah. You know? And um, his daughter made a victim impact statement at MacArthur's sentencing hearing, mm-hmm. saying that she will always have to live knowing that she will never have a relationship with her father. Mm. Which is like, fuck. Fuck, ouch, fuck. You're like, that sucks. So he was one of two white victims and was still extremely, extremely vulnerable because he was homeless and had mental illness struggles. And this picture, it's the top far right, Mm -hmm. is uh, probably a younger picture. There's a different photo. He doesn't look 47 years old in that photo. Yeah, there's another photo that, that also is circulated where he looks. A lot more like a mentally ill homeless guy. Which probably that I kind of like this picture because he just sort of looks like a guy. Looks, yeah, he just looks like a guy. The other picture that I've seen a lot, he looks kind of like he was a rest photo. Right. I like the idea of it being more age accurate, but at the same time, I think it's better that it's like I don't know a summary of the person, not a summary of the person at their worst. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Good phrasing. So then the two victims from Project Prism were the last two victims. So Salim Essen was a 44-year-old Turkish citizen. Top left? Top left, yeah. So probably also a passport photo or something. He he was interested in a lot of the stuff that, like, we like, like, me and you like. Oh, yeah? I feel like we would have, like, learning about him, I feel like me and you would have liked him a lot. Oh. He was really interested in learning and, like, sociology and politics mm-hmm. and, like, gardening. Oh. Like, he was our dude. Oh. You know? Yeah. And, oh, my God. And this also is, like, so much, like, oh, ouch, you're so us. He previously struggled with substance abuse, but was planning to turn that around to help others in similar situations. Mm. Yeah. So he was like, he was like a people helper. He was a people helper. <laughs> he was that kind of a soul. Aww. And I was like, shit, dude. Fuck. That's not cool. All it's serial not killers cool. should be like, required to be like Dexter and only kill bad people. Okay, we'll make that a new law. (laughs) When you are breaking the law by murdering, make sure to break the law by murdering these people. Yes. Yeah. 
So he was reported missing in April of 2017. And this is also like another like, oh shit, it's us. His best friend, who he spoke to every day, reported him missing when he failed to respond to a text. Oh, man. Doesn't that hurt you? Yes. Aren't you like, oh my god, he is us. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so, so that just like, fuck, man. Fuck. Let's... And then the final victim, who kind of was the reason that MacArthur was finally caught, was Andrew Kinsman. Mm-hmm. He was a 49-year-old prominent member of the gay village, and he went missing Pride Weekend mm-hmm. 2017. The Kinsman disappearance sparked a community-wide search for the missing men and the serial killer responsible. Because he was out and well-known. Because he was out and well-known. And <sighs> all, of the meta- all of the men, except for Kinsman... And Lissowick mm-hmm. were of Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And many of the men hid their homosexuality from their families, wives, and children. Which just sort of made them more vulnerable. Well, because any time you're living a secret life, too, that does. That puts you in Exactly. Risk. Yeah. And... Often when men like this went missing, police would just attribute it to them just leaving town. And this is particularly due to their vulnerability in the community and particularly due to the general assumption that men can take care of themselves. It's true. That's definitely a general assumption, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that is one reason why the police didn't drop the ball in this case. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there's a lot of, like, why didn't you investigate this better? Why weren't you caring more about the homosexual population? Yada yada, etc. That said, for one, it's really hard to catch a serial killer and just, like, in general. Mm -hmm. Because it's hard to connect random murders. But for two, when a person goes missing and there's no body... It is incredibly difficult to investigate. Right. Just, that makes sense. Because you are allowed to disappear. As an adult, you are allowed to go back to the country that you were from or just leave your family. Right. You can just be and a go into hiding and, and be like, peace, I'm out. Yeah. Like you are allowed to disappear without it being illegal or sketchy. And if police put a like murder level investigation into every missing person then no murders would get solved right because they'd be investigating because, a lot of people just bouncing and being flaky yeah and a lot of times when pe- especially adults when people go missing it's it, it resolves itself yeah within three days to 30 days oh wow i didn't know you that. know it's it's very common for people to just go missing and then come back and then come back. Because adults are allowed to live their fucking life. Yeah. You know? And so because they didn't have these bodies until after MacArthur was arrested, investigating this case was really, really difficult. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. And so in that, in that particular, like, general part of this whole puzzle, 
I gotta give police the benefit of the doubt. They did not drop the ball in that in that way. instance. <laughs> yeah. And and like I remember a lot of like, well, why didn't you tell us that you thought that there was a serial killer active? And I remember hearing the chief of police basically saying, like, if we were to say that there was a serial killer for missing people. <sighs> No. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, because there was, other than most of them were connected to the gay village, they didn't have an actual connection. Right. They didn't establish that, like, MacArthur connected them all or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were trying to establish it in their own investigation, but they weren't about to warn the public. No, that would be irresponsible. Yeah. And I I agree. I agree with that. Like, I, I absolutely understand the concern and the criticism from the LGBT community in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually with the police on this one. That was the right decision. Yeah, it's true. So I guess we're already into politics time, but politics time? Politics time. So, gee, Alex, why do you take... Keep talking about gay serial killers. Yeah. I wrote to myself. Why do you do that? Like, that seems kind of <laughs> Okay. Weird. So I was thinking about that and I was like, Alex, that's kind of fucked up. It feels like you have an agenda. And <laughs> it feels like you have an agenda. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I don't want to make it seem like all of the serial killers are gay men because they're fucking not. Most serial killers are straight men. I'm not like this. And then I realized, you know what I think it is? I think it's that I'm interested by the victim profile. Oh, that makes total sense. Because people will, isn't that a statistic that people, like, that people um, will murder the demographic they're sexually attracted to? Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, People tend to murder within their own demographic, which is actually kind of interesting because he was killing... um, Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian men. Middle Eastern men, which which is actually pretty uncommon. Usually people murder within their race that sounds super fucked up but it's actually very true you know crime tends to be intra-racial yeah you know yeah um and 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 it's just because people tend to stay within their own demographics yeah you know you're killing the people that are next to you Mm -hmm. but i think the reason that i'm interested in these gay serial killers so often is not because I've got like some weird beef with gay men's serial killers or think that serial killers tend to be gay men or whatever. I think it's that I I hurt extra for victims in the gay community. Right. It's in a community that you can identify with and have a connection to and so of course and there's a whole bunch of fucked up shit going on like all the time. So mm-hmm. of course like you're going to feel a particular heartstring tug to those victims. Yeah. yeah, and like my my politics meter just starts dinging when there's a gay serial killer cuz I'm like, where did the cops fuck up? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and so so I I I think I finally figured out why I keep covering gay serial killers. I will try to do a straight serial killer next. Sorry guys. Sorry guys. <laughs> And then you asked a really cool question before we even started. Oh, yes. That I did want to answer. So I guess what I'm curious about is, and I didn't realize when you said, you know, most serial killers aren't gay men. 
because, <laughs> uh, you know, I get my education from you and that is what we've been covering, right? And so <laughs> I <bad>. definitely, <laughs> I did not have this assumption in my head of like causation, right? I definitely don't think that like being gay makes you more likely to be a serial killer. But <laughs> it did make me very curious about the impacts of like being in a marginalized group and what that would have on the likelihood that like all these other factors would come together and you would like become a serial killer right because obviously there's like emotional mm-hmm. issues and there's like how you were raised and there's economic factors and there's chemical imbalances but i feel like being a member especially when we're talking about like in the 60s and 70s when serial killers really spiked like being a member of that community when it's so underground and so marginalized and so marginalized and so like frowned upon and i guess to oh, yeah. a lot of extent still today that has mm-hmm. to that has to like sort of feed into antisocial behavior, right? And maybe be more of an inciting reason for you to do the fucked up things, I would assume. Yeah. So so I think what it is is that if the antisocial personnel or if the antisocial behavior isn't there already, mm. then it's not going to be added because you're a marginalized person. Right. That makes sense. But I think if the antisocial behavior is there a tendency towards it anyway. Mm-hmm. If you are marginalized, it might come out in internalized hatred. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because that's something I've picked up on a lot is it seems like, and maybe I just assume they hate them because, like, they're murdering them. <laughs> but it does <laughs> seem like that, where, like, it seems like some weird internalized homophobia when gay men serial mm-hmm. murder other gay men. That's... <sighs> I feel like it can't be ruled out. Okay. Especially in those like 1970s, 1980s yeah. cases. Um, and I think even in this case, because he was alive in the 1970s. Right, he was out. And so he, he still out. had that socialization. And clearly he tried to live the straight life yeah. and then eventually came out. So he clearly had some of that internalized homophobia. Oh, clearly. But yeah. like... With, you know, with John Wayne Gacy and with Jeffrey Dahmer and and with Dean Corll, like, I I really, really earnestly wonder if they would have been serial killers if homophobia wasn't a thing. Right. And I have a similar, you know? like, yeah, they probably still would have been messed up people, but like... Sure. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't have gotten that far. Yeah. Like, I feel like a lot of, a lot of the these people and maybe that's also part of what fascinates me is like wanting to break down that mental state Mm -hmm. but i feel like it's really common for for this particular category of serial killer to be attempting to cover up their homosexuality yeah you know like they're trying to not be gay right cover it up you know especially like mm -hmm, i just had especially like dean coral especially John Wayne Gacy, who were trying to live this, like, outwardly straight, specially, like... Upstanding gentleman citizen. Upstanding, mm-hmm. And, and so, but they wanted to act on their homosexuality. And so, in acting on it, they had to kill the thing that they were. Yeah. You know, they had to hide themselves. They had... And, and they were also getting their anger at themselves out. Yeah on these boys who represented them. Yeah. See, and that's definitely what it seems like a lot. And even though 
uh, Bruce was out, yeah, it doesn't seem like... Yeah. He's obviously I mean, still like, going to Jeffrey... have some trauma, like you said, because he did mm-hmm. pretend or he did try to be straight and yeah. live that life. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think it's more egregious in that direction with, like, John Wayne Gacy and Dean Coral. Mm-hmm. But, like, Jeffrey Dahmer was out. But I think that his weird shame of being gay Mm -hmm. also came out in his serial killing because he didn't want to murder people. He just wanted people to not leave him. He was afraid of his relationships with men. And so that's why he killed. That's That's I didn't realize that. And so I wonder if he, you know, was raised in a world where homophobia didn't exist if he would have had some kind of outlet to, I don't know, explore, hey, maybe let's try to work through these weird emotional concerns of being left during sex instead of murdering people. Right. Exactly. Well, how <laughs> you are know? you supposed to get any kind of help or guidance regarding your sexual identity and how to have healthy and functional relationships that don't drive you up the wall when you can't even mm-hmm. address your own sexuality? Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's hard to really analyze Bruce MacArthur because his case is so new. So, like, we don't know his whole life story and we've never had him express really his motivations behind his killings. But I think from what we know of other gay serial killers, we can parse out some of that from the life story that we know. Yeah. And maybe... It was that weird internalized homophobia that drove him to committing these murders. I apologize. Everything okay? Yeah, my computer just made a sound at me that it's never made before, and it's annoying that it did that, like, during recording. Oh, okay. okay. So, that's all. But everything's fine? Everything's fine. Yeah. So... I, I don't know if I've talked about that in the show before. I might have, but it is a thing that I definitely want to get across. I think that a lot of these gay serial killers would have never murdered if homophobia didn't exist. I think that's valid. I think that's a so, logical assertion, at least to some extent, right? Like, maybe they would have... Yeah. Maybe some of them would have still murdered, but maybe it would have been one, or maybe... Mm-hmm. You know, there would have been assault and battery and other things that would have got them caught. Yeah. And, you know. I'm sure they still would have been fucked up. I'm sure they would have still engaged in antisocial behavior. But I don't know that they would have been murdering, you know? Well, that's the thing about isolating and marginalizing a population, right? Not only are you putting the, you know, other people within that population at risk because they're unseen, but you're also providing mm-hmm. this unseen space for monsters mm-hmm. to kind of grow and thrive. Yeah. And, and, you know, that even furthered, you know, with the whole, maybe they would have only done one murder, that kind of goes back to the marginalization of the community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's absolutely an indication that if police cared more about these marginalized populations, then certain body counts would be lower. And that's not just for the queer community. That's for sex workers. That's for sex workers of color. Yeah. That's for trans women that's for like any marginalized community um i actually have that written down further on 
um, in this outline uh-huh. because I'm kind of breaking down the um, the marginalized statuses of our of the victims. Yeah. But well, I mean, I guess let's just get into yeah. it. It's flowing naturally. So, let's do it. Yeah. So. So blah, blah, blah. We already talked about the whole adult men perfectly capable of taking care of mm-hmm. themselves. So that's going to be a, a factor. And it's it's both a valid and an invalid factor. Okay. Because we are going to pay attention to women going missing, mm-hmm. but not men. Yep. Sexism hurts everyone. TM. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, most of the men MacArthur targeted were gay, immigrants, of color. Right. And to add insult to injury, many of these men weren't out to their friends and family, making their own community relationships more strained. Right, and more tenuous, too. Mm-hmm. So their relationship to the queer community and their relationship to their um, immigrant refugee... Right, they're not 100% in either community. They're between. Mm-hmm. They're floating between communities, so... The likelihood, and when you're doing that sort of double life thing, the likelihood that somebody in either community will go, oh, it's weird that they're, like, not around. Like, that goes down. Yep, exactly. Because you're never known and present. So, I'm going to talk about each of those points. First, uh, people of color. Uh, Police do not have the best track record for giving a fuck about people of color. You are correct. And I don't like, okay, look, usually Canada beats America. I'll give you that. But, like, Canada's track record with their Inuit population Terrible. or with their indigenous population is just as bad, if not worse, than ours. Yeah. Like, I mean, y'all suck, they're still homies. like white imperialists, right? <laughs> like, they're still, yeah. they're still a nation of white You're just imperialists, white imperialists. Just like us. <laughs> so that's a factor, right? As much as we would like to just be like, Trudeau is the savior, Canada's awesome. Like, yeah, it's still. He literally blackfaced. Yeah, it's still. <laughs> a couple of right, times. That's, that's exactly kind of what I was getting at. Is it still like. <laughs> I don't know. It's still the descent. It's still the wealthy descendants of right, white imperialists running the show. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't yep. glorify it too much. <laughs> yeah, hugely. And, um,. Oh my god. This is exactly what I wanted to talk about. So this is an unfortunate phrase that I learned while doing this research Mm -hmm. that is accurate. It's just disappointingly so. Missing white woman syndrome. Mm. Do you hate that? Do you hate how accurate it is? Do you hate it? (laughs) So this is the idea that police, media, the public, etc. are less likely... Yeah, they're less likely to give attention to crimes perpetrated against marginalized communities. So they're less likely to give attention to crimes committed against men because men are considered to be able to take care of themselves. mm -hmm. So, like, a white man's disappearance is not going to be treated the same way as a white woman's for that. Exactly. That's, like, almost like a benevolent disregard, right? Like, oh, you got Mm -hmm. it, you got it, it's fine, we don't need to worry about you. And then for Mm -hmm. everyone else, it's a, we just don't care. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's like this weird balance with sexism that that makes it so that people are more likely to care about the disappearance of a woman than a man. I mean, like, frankly, I'm glad that like, I mean, I am thankful, I guess I should say, to be in the demographic that yeah. especially being young, I'm sure that adds to it, right? Like, I'm pretty thankful mm-hmm. to be in the demographic that people will statistically care the most about if I go missing. But it's still fucked. Yeah. 
Well, and also the reason that people care that you go missing is because they think that you're incompetent and so you can't take care of yourself. I know. I was trying to avoid saying that. I didn't want to sound yeah. all like bitchy and just like, I'm not happy with anything. No, like, I think it's valid. You can be like mad at benevolent sexism. That was definitely <laughs> the first thought I had actually was just like, yeah, before I was able to calm down and be like, okay, well, it is nice to know for my safety that like I'm in you know, the most likely demographic to be, like, immediately looked for. Um, but mm. it is, it all, is just, it all it is also fucked up that, like, I'm statistically more likely to be considered a victim than a man of my same age and ethnicity and income if I oh, were yeah. to say, Hugely. have a mental breakdown and just bounce. Yeah. I'm immediately oh, yeah. a victim. Oh, yeah. Not. No, hugely. Yeah. Which is not cool. <sighs> I don't need I to mean, be a victim. I mean, it's just one of those, like, it's complicated. It's complicated. You're right. It's very complicated. We're going to put that on a I shirt don't at some want point, people to look for me. <laughs> you know, in the name of feminism and egalitarianism and equality, I definitely don't want people to look any less hard for me if I disappear. <laughs> right. But also, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. But, but yeah, basically, for any other marginalized class, you're less likely to have the public give a fuck about you. Mm-hmm. So... White woman syndrome is kind of like the same as white little girl syndrome when it's missing persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is just sort of an interesting thing that I thought should be brought up that I think matters to this particular discussion. So, uniform police were actually... I think they withdrew their application to march in the Toronto Pride Parade after MacArthur's arrest, largely in part due to a push by Black Lives Matter, who were part of the parade. I don't understand that. Are they saying that, like, the police weren't welcome in the parade because they weren't serving them, basically? Yeah. That's valid. If the cops yeah. aren't serving your community, why would you want to welcome them into your community event? Yep. And... I don't know. I just think it's a relevant thing to bring up. Well, it really highlights the distance and the disconnect because uh-huh. I think in almost any other setting, no matter your political views, if you're holding a big public celebration or an event or a parade and the local police force wants to be involved in it in a participatory kind of context, uh-huh. not in a security context, you would, you know, that's like a community thing. You want that. Uh-huh. Right, you want that crossover between law enforcement and good old fashioned yeah. fun, right? Yeah. But the fact that that relationship was so strained that they were like, "No, we don't want you to celebrate with us." Okay, thanks, bye. Yeah, like, I think that it is the uncle stopped getting invited over for Thanksgiving dinner. That's intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's completely appropriate in this setting. I. I want there to be healing between the LGBT community and and the police force. And I want there to be healing between the police and people of color. Yeah. Although that's an area that I have no right. horses in. Well, it's a matter of, I think, who's opening the door, right? Like, at yeah. a certain point, if you're the one who's feeling marginalized or victimized, the onus stops being on you to open the door. For that relationship yeah. repair. Well, and that's why I say, like, I don't have any push in, like, yeah. the police and people of color because I am neither. 
Yeah. But as a queer person, I can be like, I hope that there is healing in this community. And it's not like invalidating to my community to say that. That said, I think in this situation, because it was people of color, because it was gay people, Mm -hmm. I think that the push to have the have uniform police withdraw their application to the parade was so valid. Oh, yeah, I definitely think it's way valid. Yeah. So, yeah, two more, two more, like, marginalized classes that I want to kind of talk about with this case. Mm -hmm. So, immigrants, particularly refugees, they are new to a country. They have fewer ties to people within the country. Mm -hmm. They tend to be less trusting of the authorities. Right, so they're less likely to report or complain if someone they know does go missing. Yeah, they, exactly. Even if they want their loved one to be found, they also don't want to get deported back to what exactly. they're fleeing from. Exactly. Yes. So so I found this to be the case when I was working in youth services. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of times that we had kids dropped off with us who were clearly from refugee homes. Mm-hmm. So not just like immigrant kids, but like full on like they were here on asylum. Mm-hmm. And just getting them to tell us their real names was like pulling teeth. Wow. Because there's a very valid fear of going to the authorities, especially if you're a refugee. Not just because of whatever might have happened in your home country that usually involves authorities and political control, but like, because our refugee system is fucked, so why would you trust us? Dude, that's literally how I, that's what I have written. Oh, I didn't read that, sorry. Yeah, (laughs) no, you're fine. No, I I love that that you echoed it before I even said it. So, A, whatever you left your home country for, you know, you have a valid reason to fear the authorities. And then, B, not wanting to risk being sent back to your home country because of unsavory interactions with government officials. Yeah. So, so literally, your two points were my two points. Perfect. We're both super right. Exactly. We are, we are on each other's wavelength. So, and then finally, the gay community. So this is a twofold issue. This is one of those like it's complicated TM take a drink. Sorry, <laughs> being way too intense. So for one, yeah, there is a hugely problematic history with police in the gay community. We talked about this when we discussed Stonewall. Go to our Patreon if you want to listen to it. It's a mini sode that's free. It's a mini sode and- that's free. <laughs> <laughs> and public willingness to give a fuck and the gay community so particularly in toronto the equivalent of the stonewall riots happened for them in 1981 okay so 200 police raided four bathhouses and arrested 250 men for what for gay in 81 like, that this... was still a thing mm-hmm damn yeah for gay. Yeah. Oh. For gay. Yeah, for for inappropriate sexual behavior or for public indecency, you know, that sort of stuff. House, not in public. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So essentially like they had the pride celebrations after Stonewall. Uh-huh. But their first big pride parade was in nineteen eighty one after this. Okay. After this bathhouse raid. And so basically they have that same history that like America has and like Mm -hmm. New York specifically has with the Stonewall riots. Yeah. But theirs is more recent. 
you know? Yeah. They have a more recent fear of cops and and a, a, a disconnect between those communities. Yeah, a major disconnect between those communities. Yeah. And then there's also a racism issue within the gay community. And basically... The victim who got the gay village moving was Andrew Kinsman, who was one of the two white victims, and he was the white victim that wasn't homeless and struggling with mental illness. I wondered if that was going to come up. I definitely noticed that immediately, and I was like, hmm. It's the most, yeah. like, it's the most uh, emotionally stable and, like, prosperous-looking white man that uh, got the police to finally do something. Or yeah. they even got the gay community more motivated to do something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, like, the gay community does have, like, a really, really nasty racism issue. Like, there are still gay men going on apps saying no black dudes in their fucking dating profiles. So, basically, my thought here is this. Despite the very, like, real difficulties and struggles of being like a closeted gay man or even growing up like even being out and just existing in the like cis white male community i still think that there's going to be a lot of crossover from normative behavior in that community to the gay community right so you saw Mm -hmm. that in like the um in the i remember watching harvey milk and seeing how in that show they really highlighted the like sexism right we've talked before about the sexism mm-hmm. in the gay community yeah and, like you know telling the lesbians to get back in the kitchen and make them their sandwiches mm-hmm. that kind of thing oh it's yeah like, oh, that was God, that's such so a thing and yeah. i think that that kind of thing feels very much like a carryover between like misogynistic cis culture and like the gay community and it's something you'd think wouldn't translate but clearly did and i mm-hmm. feel like uh racism is probably very similar where it's like yeah Yes, you're part of a marginalized community and you went through a big struggle, you know, because you outwardly look like a white, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, a straight white male, and you're not, so that's obviously going to present some challenges, but also, like, mm, that doesn't mean you're totally innocent and you did still grow up in that same culture, so, like, I don't know, some of that stuff is going to carry over, and it's just interesting yeah. that it does. It's interesting that experiencing that kind of difficulty and marginalization doesn't make you more inherently, doesn't inherently make you more empathetic to other people who are Mm -hmm. marginalized for different reasons than you. Yeah. No, I have, I have so many opinions on this because like, I, I exist in some marginalized classes and some, um, what's the opposite of marginalized? Privileged. Privilege, yes. I exist in some marginalized classes and some privileged classes. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of can see this in a nuanced way just in my own experience. Mm -hmm. And it is so frustrating because basically every marginalized community, when they get just a little bit of a hold, starts stepping on other marginalized communities. Uh And so you see this in like... That's exactly what I was thinking. In like super, super religious black populations shitting on gay people mm-hmm. or in, oh God, white women shitting on black women. 
Yeah. In their feminism. Mm -hmm. You know, white feminism is a term. (laughs) I don't like that. And it's because there's this, like, oh, we're both women, so we have the exact same experience. And it's like, no. Yeah. (laughs) Shut up. And... And, and it happens in the gay community. It's, it's currently happening with the gay community attempting to leave trans people behind. Yeah. Or deciding, no, we're gonna fucking all do this together. Yeah. Like we have been. And it is also a case with the gay community being kind of racist. Yeah. You know? And that's complicated because as a marginalized community, you say, oh, well, I'm marginalized. So you can't judge me for right, almost gives you car being for shitty. Your own shitty behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't have like a, a gay card or a black card or a middle class woman card. Like you don't mm-hmm. get to just be like, no, because I'm marginalized in this way. I get to be a dick to other people or their experiences yeah. don't matter. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing about, like, the oppression Olympics is kind of, like, the worst Olympics. Yeah. It's like, stop competing for who has it worst and start joining together to take on the people that are actively oppressing you. Right. It's Well, you know? and I think that's a... I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, although I think some people would definitely refer to it that way, but the idea that, you know, it's almost like... Like, the Manson murders and race baiting and all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it feels like somebody is intentionally trying to... That there's an intentional push and a force trying to make marginalized people, like, pit themselves against each other. Because I it's do. so Because it's so yeah. advantageous for, like... Um, I learned this phrase from my Dan Carlin podcast, and I think <laughs> it's it's Latin, so I'm hoping I'm not fucking it up, but it's, like, qui, qui bono, which means okay. who benefits. It, right, it yeah, means yeah, yeah. who benefits, and the idea is that you can usually identify the perpetrator of a situation, or identify if a situation is mastermind by identifying who benefits from it. Yeah, and who benefits really from all of this, like you know, gay men not infighting okay with yeah, all this infighting. Who benefits from the yeah. infighting? Because certainly no individual group benefits from it. Yeah, no, I I hate watching marginalized groups step on marginalized groups while trying to climb the ladder that was put there by the people that aren't getting shat on at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's it's so frustrating and and I I I don't know what the solution is. I just know that it's a problem. <laughs> I think sometimes people get so lost in it kind of almost reminds me of a thing at work where, like, sometimes at staff meetings I'll bring up things that I think are a problem and I'll, people will be like, oh, you shouldn't just bring up problems, you should have a solution. It's like, I don't fucking know the solution. And so I think right. sometimes people are, it's important to them, just like it's been important to me, to highlight the differences in my experience and somebody else's and make sure mm-hmm. that my problem is seen as unique and, you know, get that kind of, not just emotional validation, but everyone's problems do need to be solved somewhat differently, right? Like, yeah. you can't you can't just approach social justice as though... One size fits all? Yeah, you can't do that. And so on the one hand, it it's a really complicated important. and nuanced issue. Yeah, it's no matter who you're the dealing with. But then th- that becomes people infighting because yeah. they take their aggression out on the wrong people. Yeah, because it's easier. Yeah. 
because it is so much easier to take your aggression out on somebody who is not holding the key. Right. And, I mean, maybe the solution is just literally acknowledging it at all. Right. Well, and that's kind of, I don't know. I think that that's something I learned about a lot in, you know, this various psychology and, like, stuff I've been studying for work is just this idea that, like, as far as having maintaining a healthy relationship on an individual level, you don't have to not fuck up. And you don't right. have to not have messed up, uh, self-defeating, or negative thought processes. It's it's not about, like, literally the people with the healthiest interpersonal relationships. It's not that they're free from those negative thought patterns or self-defeating assumptions or victim stancing and all that kind of stuff. It's that they're willing to go, oh, fuck, I just did that and acknowledge that they did that and acknowledge that it's a problem because then, you know, that can be out in the open and not something that has to be, like, also defended against. Because if you can't admit you have a problem, you're going to be defensive when your problem comes up. Yeah. It's just stupid. Yeah. People are dumb. People are dumb. So, yeah. Even though this was a super modern case, it felt really, really political and entirely, like, valid for our podcast. I have I have an assertion here. I don't think... Can you have, like, an apolitical serial killer? I mean, really? If there's <laughs> enough social pressures going on that somebody is going to feel compelled to, like, murder lots and lots of people... Isn't there inherently going to be, like, I don't know. I think there's inherently going to be a, a social justice or political aspect to that. Like, it's it's a symptom of society, right? So how can you get away from that? Yeah. I don't know. This one just felt really apt. <laughs> yes, I agree. I'm not trying to diminish the aptness of this. You're right. It's very apt and it's very fitting. And I think that maybe what I said was, uh, like, you know, maybe you and our listeners had already thought of that before. And it's like, does Sunshine... Obviously, all, like, major crimes have political significance, but that yeah. was kind of an aha moment for me of, like, oh, well, yeah, like, that all would have to be, like, well, if, I mean, if you're, if you're, um, micro, I don't know, I want to say microclimate, but if you're, you know, whatever, individual society or micro society has, uh, facilitated the formation of a serial killer... <laughs> There's something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I mean, like, we've definitely said horror is inherently political a thousand times. Yes. So. Serial murders are I also mean, inherently political. <laughs> crime. Yeah. Crime is political. Crime is political. Yeah. Yep. So. That's what we're going to leave you with, listeners. Crime is political. <laughs> and we're going to really get into that next series. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, boy. Yeah, we're going to be very, very defendant positive in our next series. Yeah. So enjoy that. I guess let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up and I will go to bed. uh, I hope you all enjoyed a nice long episode after a bit of a hiatus for Sunshine to get her damn beauty sleep. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that you think I slept. (laughs) What is sleep? What is sleep? I don't even know anymore. And uh, 
all of the regular stuff. Thanks for listening. I hope you like us. If you do like us, give us a rated review or share us with your friends. That's really, really helpful word of mouth. Or do both. How about Um, both? Both is nice. If you really, really, really like us, you can donate to our Patreon and get even more us stuff. We like and, to talk. Um, we'll, 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 we love talking. We'll talk about whatever you want. <laughs> Just give us your money. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you like us, you know, enough to keep up with us, then follow us on social media. We're Palm Pitch Pod for everything. That's cute. I like it. Okay. I think my sense of humor doesn't come across in some of the things I say. I think I am socially <laughs> awkward. I think you might be socially I awkward. Think be. I think it's also like an hour past your bedtime and you're getting weird. Uh, that's also, yeah, both of those things 100% are true. 100% true. Yeah. <laughs> both of those things yeah. are true. Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, in that case. Okay, love you, bye. Oh, love you, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys understand my sense of humor or not.